Bibles, and I hope you do. Uh, turn with me to Isaiah 53. We'll start reading there. We're going to be in the New Testament, but I, I thought it would be good to read Isaiah. Well, let's read this fourth servant song. And then, and as I read it, I want you to think as though you're Isaiah over 2,700 years ago, and you are the one who is prophesying. You are the one who is writing that. What would you think, and what would you feel, and what, would, what questions would you have as you give this prophecy? So Isaiah 53, actually we're going to begin in 52, 13. And whenever I say 53 in this series, it, it begins in 52, uh, 13. So let's, let's look at there. Follow along in your Bibles. Behold, my servant will prosper, and he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted, just as many were astonished at you, my people. So his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him, for what had not been told them they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of a parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that, he, that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so, did, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? For transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich Man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will proclaim, prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And as a result of the anguish of his soul... He will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, 
and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death, and he was numbered with the transgressions. Yet he himself bore the sin of many, and interceded for transgressors. So that's Isaiah 53, and we are privileged to live in a time between the now and the not yet. When Isaiah prophesied that, all of it was yet to happen. We live in a time where we know that the first coming of Christ, He's fulfilled part of that prophecy, but we await the second coming of Christ when all of it will be fulfilled. He has been partially exalted, but he's not fully exalted. And he doesn't rule over the nations. And Israel hasn't yet been regathered, as we know from the other servant songs, that when he comes, his kingdom will reign on this earth, Israel will be regathered, and the nations will see the light. And as it says in Isaiah 53, they will be sprinkled, they will be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Well... Like Isaiah, and the rest, Isaiah was like the rest of the Old Testament prophets, they were puzzled by this. If you were Isaiah, what questions would you have as you prophesied this? As, you know, the Lord is causing you to speak this and write this, what questions would you have if you were Isaiah? Well, here's what I would put forth to you. The Old Testament prophets were puzzled. They were puzzled over the prophecies revealed to them by the Lord. They had questions. They didn't understand everything. But we, as the New Testament people of God, are privileged. We're privileged to live at a time when Christ has come and the good news of what Isaiah predicted would happen, we can announce it's been fulfilled, it's being fulfilled, And it will yet be fully fulfilled. And so this morning, I want to do a brief study of 1 Peter 1. So turn over to 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12. Because these three three verses tell us what Isaiah was thinking, what he was asking, what he was wondering, what he was puzzled about when he wrote his entire book, to be honest with you, the entire book, but especially as it pertains to Isaiah 53. And so look here in 1 Peter. Let's first read uh, verses 1 and 2. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, exiles, scattered throughout these various uh, areas, who are chosen... According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. There's that idea of sprinkling. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. These were uh, particularly Jewish believers, but believers that were scattered. They were suffering. They were living as strangers in strange lands throughout uh, the area of Asia Minor, and yet Peter wants them to know you are still a privileged people. Uh, verses three through six that says that they they had been they or verses one through five or I'm sorry three through five says they had been privileged to be born again to a living hope. But let's look at verses six through nine. 
In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, they were going through severe suffering, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor, when? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, He's saying, wait a minute, you believe in Christ, but Christ is yet to be revealed. We live in this now, not yet. He has come, and he was crucified, and now we proclaim that gospel of crucifixion, humiliation, exaltation, but he's coming again. And look at verse 8. Here's the life in the now, not yet. Look at verse 8. And though you have not seen him, you love him. We love someone we've never seen. We heard the gospel... We heard of him in the gospel, and we trust him. But notice this, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, you, 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 you don't see him, but you love him, and you've, you've never seen him, and yet you rejoice as though he's already come. I mean, that's, that's a beautiful thing. That's the now, not yet that we live in. And look, the reason we anticipate and rejoice in the glory to come is because of verse 9. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. You're like, wait a minute. I thought when you trust Christ, you're saved. In the past, you're right, but you're also being saved. And there's yet a future salvation when... Christ comes and we no longer, our sin nature is taken away, our glorified bodies are given to us and the presence of sin is no more and the temptation of sin, no more sin, no more suffering. But really what we should be anticipating is no more separation from our Savior. Amen? So that's the idea. That is this salvation, the fullness of our salvation. Now notice what he then says in verse 10. As to this salvation, well, which salvation? The one we just read about in verses 7 through 9, particularly verse 9. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied, that is the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah, prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. Well, what were they searching? What were they asking? Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Verse 12, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. That is us as New Testament believers in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, by the way, things into which angels long to look. Wow. Well, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see the puzzlement of the Old Testament prophets. They were puzzled by what they predicted. 
And then I want you, we will see, we'll end with that, and hopefully you'll see through that, just how privileged we are to be living in this time between the now and the not yet. So let's take a look at the puzzlement of the Old Testament prophets and realize that would include Isaiah as he predicted Isaiah 53. And the first thing, there's three points here I want you to see about their puzzlement. The first of all is the Old Testament prophets predicted the promise of the gospel. That's the first thing you see in verse 10. They predicted the promise of the gospel. And last week we saw the essentials of the gospel revealed and applied to Isaiah in Isaiah 6. But that wasn't the proclamation of the gospel. It was more of a pattern. Here's the pattern of the gospel. Anybody remember the five essentials or the pattern of the gospel? Anybody remember? What's the first one? begins with God. God's what? God's position. And in light of God's position, we understand man's condition. And in light of God's position and man's condition, we desperately need Christ's provision. And in light of Christ's provision, when that gospel is proclaimed, we have a decision to make, and that is our conversion. Our conversion. And those who are truly converted by repentance and faith are a new what? New creation. There you go. And so that's the pattern of the essentials of the gospel. But in Isaiah 53 that I just read to you, you actually have the proclamation and prediction of the gospel promised. Now, what were they prophesying about? So in your notes, let's take a look at this, and we see it right there in verse 10. They were prophets, the Old Testament prophets in general, were prophesying about as to this salvation. Well, as I said, what salvation is this? This is the salvation of the gospel uh, that he just was talking about. Being born again by hearing the good news that the sinless Son of God had become human and lived a sinless human life and died on the cross as a substitute, sin-bearing substitute and sacrifice in our place, was resurrected and declared Savior and King and ascended and seated at the right hand, is able to offer salvation to anyone as a gift. That's what it is. But notice in verse 10 that Peter, Peter summarizes that whole message of the gospel in one word. And what is that one word? Look at verse 10. What's he call it? He calls it the grace. The grace. Think about that. He just summarized all of salvation. He says, as to this suffering, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come. The grace. Now, what a great way to summarize the gospel. Why call salvation grace? Well, in light of God's position, one of holiness, and our condition one of hopeless and helpless sinfulness, there's only one way we're going to be saved, and it's by grace. It's going to be by grace. And then who is the one that provides Christ as our provision? It's God. It's a gift. Salvation is a gift. What else would you call it? The Apostle Paul especially loved to refer to the gospel as the gospel of the grace 
of God. He does this in Acts 20, 24. And then in Romans 5, 2, he summarizes the position of believers as standing in grace. And then in Romans 6, 14, he tells us that we are not under the law, but we are ruled by grace. And then in Titus 2, 11, he says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And think about what he's saying. He's saying the grace of God has appeared. Well, who appeared to bring salvation? Jesus. He literally personifies grace as Jesus Christ. You can just substitute grace for Jesus. You can substitute grace for salvation. And so they predicted this salvation which is summarized as grace, but they also predicted, according to verse 11, the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And what you have in that summary is something I mentioned to you last week, and that is this, the gospel is always a who plus a what. Okay, it's a who and a what. You have to have a sinless man, and yet he must be eternal God. Who dies on that cross is critical. Because a lot of people sacrifice for other people, but they are not sinless, and they are not eternal God. Why is that? It had to be a sinless man because men are men and women are the ones who rebelled against God. It had to be eternal God because God is the one we sinned against and so the offense is an eternal offense offense that needs an eternal payment. So you got to have a who but it's a what. And in that what the Old Testament prophets, and not only them, but the, the New Testament apostles summarized it as sufferings. And Peter says glories, plural, glories. So you have humiliation and you have exaltation. In other words, crucifixion and resurrection, but not just resurrection, but also uh, uh, exalted to the right hand of God. And when we read through Isaiah, did you not hear those two themes? In fact, Isaiah 52, 13 through 15 begins with a simple summary of humiliation and exaltation. So this is what he would do. And yet, you know what? As we move through Isaiah 53, we're going to see hints and predictions of crucifixion being pierced through. We're going to see uh, hints of resurrection because it's like he he dies and yet he's going to see his generation. These things aren't spelled out, but they're there. And, And in fact, all of this about who this is? Well, think about it. You need a sinless you need a sinless man. And so what does Isaiah 7 predict? A man born of a virgin, which enables a sinless baby to be born. You also need a um, eternal God. And what does Isaiah 9 say? He will be this child will be the mighty God. 
you also need a conquering king. And what does Isaiah 11 predict? A conquering king who will be exalted. But we also need a suffering servant. And what does the servant songs predict? All four servant songs predict that suffering servant. And so what you have is the gospel and who and the what. Isaiah 7, uh, the sinless man we see in the gospel of Luke who traces his genealogy back to Adam. In Isaiah 9, we see the eternal God. That is the gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Isaiah 11, we need a conquering king. That is the gospel of Matthew. All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. And in Isaiah 53, we need the suffering servant. And Mark is about the Savior who said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, which ransom for many comes right out of Isaiah 53. So this is what they were prophesying. This is what they were predicting. But look carefully at 10 through 11, or actually verse 11. Look carefully. How did they prophesy about this? It's, 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 it's amazing. The Spirit of God, actually it's called the Spirit of Christ, predicted. And by the way, this isn't just foretelling. This is foretelling, predicted. Predicted this. This wasn't Isaiah sitting and coming up with this and God kind of inspiring his words. This was God speaking through Isaiah. So notice, and notice who does the predicting. It's not Isaiah. The Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted. So the Spirit does the predicting. The Spirit is in the prophet, speaking through the prophet. And in speaking through the prophet about the coming Christ, that's why it's called the Spirit of Christ, even though Christ had not come. I mean, that's just, that is some powerful inerrancy and inspiration of our Bibles. All right. Now, they've prophesied all this, but number two, the Old Testament prophets were puzzled by this. They were puzzled by the prediction of the promised gospel. And why is that? Because they lived before the first coming. Okay, they lived before the first coming. And so how did the Old Testament prophets search to find answers to their puzzlement? And this, these verses tell us, let me give you three characteristics of their search for answers to their puzzlement. The first way they searched was purposefully. They searched purposefully for two things. What were the two things they were searching for? They were searching for answers to two questions. Number one, who was coming? And number two, when he was coming. Notice again, verse 11. Making careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of the Christ and the glories to follow. So they knew that Christ, the Christ, the anointed one, all of these, the one who was predicted, they knew he was coming. And they knew what he was going to do, suffering and glories. What they didn't know was 
who he was and when he would come. Now, if you're looking at your Bibles, I don't know if you... I, I've got... There's two different ways to translate verse 11, all right? And the New American Standard, as well as the ESV, has seeking to know what person or time. But if you have the Christian Standard Bible, or the NIV, or the New King James, it says they inquired into what time or what circumstances. So here's the two options. Were they searching for two things or one thing? Were they searching for who the Christ would be and when he would come? Or were they ser- simply searching for when is this going to happen and what are the circumstances that will know when it will happen? Now, you can translate that either of those ways. That's why good Bibles translate them those two ways. And I would put forth to you At the end of the day, there's not a lot of difference because even if you're wanting to know when this is going to happen, there's no way that you're reading Isaiah 53 if you're Isaiah and you're not wondering what. Who is this? And I will show you from the Bible, that is the main concern. So while it's possible to translate it both ways, I I, I think comparing Scripture to Scripture, you're going to see that it's a who and when that they were searching. For instance, in Matthew eleven three, here's what John the Baptist says to Jesus from prison. Are you the expected one, or shall we look to someone else? The who question is what predominates. Turn your Bibles to, Math, uh, to Mark. Turn your Bibles to Mark 8. So John's asking this, but it wasn't just John. It was everybody. And it wasn't, and when I say everybody, even Jesus was asking this question. He wasn't asking, who, who am I? He was asking what? Who do you think I am? Look at Mark 8. Look at verses 27 through 33. Mark 8, 27 through 33. Jesus went out along with his disciples, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who? You know, not not when will the Christ come, but who do people say that I am? And they told him, saying, John the, John the Baptist, this was after John was uh, had been beheaded. Others say Elijah, but others say one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And look at verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now, this is really cool because what's he's doing? He's saying, who do you say that I am? And when Peter says you are the Christ, he begins immediately to say, indeed, you're right. I am who you know, I am the who you've been looking for. I am the Christ. And guess what? Now I'm going to do what the prophets predicted. I'm going to suffer and be crucified. And then I'm going to be resurrected and exalted. But let me show you one more example. Turn your Bibles to Acts 8. Turn your Bibles to Acts 8. And we're going to see, this is a great passage. Because this is where Philip the evangelist evangelizes the Ethiopian eunuch in his chariot, 
And guess what the Ethiopian eunuch is reading? He is reading Isaiah 53. So let's take a look. Look at verse 29, Acts 8, 29. Then the spirit said to Philip, go and join this chariot. So Philip runs up to this chariot, which is a big cart, you know, and it's not like uh, Ben-Hur, okay? It's a big cart, pillows, and the Ethiopian eunuch, very rich, privileged government official. And he ran up and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah, because in those days when you read something, you read outside, out loud. And he said, do you understand what you're reading? And like all of us, when we read Isaiah, he said, Well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. So you see, it's a big, like a, uh, I don't know, what what do you call it? A cart, you know, big cart rather than just a chariot like we would think. And now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this, Isaiah 53. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before his shears is silent. So he does not open his mouth in humiliation. His judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation for his life is removed from the earth. Then the eunuch answered and said, when will this happen? No, please tell me of whom does the prophet say this of himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and began, beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus. So what I'm trying to say is this. The prophets were puzzled about two things. A Christ, a Messiah, with all these characteristics is coming, but who is the specific person? And we know he's coming and he will suffer and be humiliated and exalted, but when, when will this happen? And so they search purposefully for these two things. Secondly, they searched diligently. And third, they searched carefully. Diligently and carefully. Notice the end of verse 10. Diligently and carefully. The NIV really catches the idea here. They searched intently and with the greatest of care. They put energy and effort into searching and finding out who are we talking about and when will he come? Now, where did they search for the... Well, first of all, these words, so you like to capture the energy, the diligence and the carefulness. How many of you have ever lost your keys this week? Jeff, all right, I knew, you know there's going to be someone. How many of you have ever lost your wallet or purse this week? Okay. How many of you have ever lost your phone? Oh, man, all the hands out. How many lost it this week? Okay, so we got Susan and Jeff right here. And did what did you do when you lost your keys and your, you know, don't go into detail, but what, what did you do? You searched diligently, frantically, frantically, carefully. You went, what do you say? When, when, in our house, we turn the house upside down and you look in every nook and cranny. And when you haven't found it, what do you do? You're diligent and careful to look in even more places, right? 
That's the capture of these. These prophets had such a passion for the person and work of Christ of which they were predicting. They wanted to frantically, energetically, carefully, diligently search who is this and when will he come. We know what he's going to do, but we don't know who and when. So where did the Old Testament prophets search so purposefully, diligently, and carefully. Well, I would give you three, three uh, suggestions on this, and they're based on Scripture. First of all, they asked the Lord while he was prophesying to them. They asked the Lord. Here's the, this, we'll see in a minute, this is an advantage of Old Testament prophets. Now, you know, granted, you might have to walk naked for three years, and you might have to do some really strange things, but the good news is, as God is prophesying to you, you can ask Him questions. And how do I know that? Because last week in Isaiah 6.11, we saw Isaiah ask, because uh, God revealed to him the judgment, the heavy judgment that was coming to Israel, and in the middle of the revelation, Isaiah says, "How he laments, and he says, How long, O Lord? And then the Lord answers him. So, possibly they asked these questions to the Lord. That's one possibility. In fact, we see this a lot. Uh, Daniel, read the prophecies of Daniel. He's always freaking out. You know, he's getting those animals and kingdoms and and, uh, physically it's taking a toll on him. He's always asking questions. And in the the revelation of John, in the book of Revelation, uh, (laughs) that's interesting. John gets quizzed by angels on what he's seen. Okay, so if you think it's tough when I ask you questions, I think you're getting this revelation, what does this mean? And John's like us, hey, I don't know, you tell me, I don't know. There's a dialogue going on in the vision and the dream, so that's one possibility. Number two, they studied one another's prophecies. They studied one another's prophecies. Would that be plural, one another's? Yeah, I guess so, possessive. Sorry, I missed that. One another's prophecies. This is, uh, turn your Bibles, Daniel 9. Go, go to Daniel 9. I'm telling you, Daniel, almost all of this stuff we're talking about can be uh, demonstrated from the book of Daniel. But look at Daniel 9, verses 1 through 3. I would put forth to you that Daniel 9 is probably the most important prophetic a passage in all the Bible regarding the, the fulfillment of prophecy. Daniel 9. Hard to understand, but important for us. Look at Daniel 9. Let's look at verses 1 through 3. In the first year of Darius, the son of that guy of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books, in the books, the number of years... Notice books, plural, the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, mainly 70 years. What he's saying is, look, I'm in captivity and I'm studying the prophecies of Jeremiah and I see Jeremiah says this is going to last 70 years. And guess what? Daniel takes that prophecy, those 70 years, literally. He doesn't do what a lot of uh, uh, New Testament interpreters do with, with prophecy and spiritualize the numbers. He says 70 years, and then he counts up, and he's like, that was 70 years ago. This is 70 years. Whoa! 
And look at what he does in verse 3. So I gave my attention to the Lord to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. In other words, he read Jeremiah's prophecy, it answered questions, and then he applied them in his life. So they studied one another's prophecies. And then number three, they prayed to the Lord about their prophecies. They prayed to the Lord about their prophecies. Prophets weren't just speakers, they were prayers, okay? And we saw that in Daniel, we just read that in Daniel 3. Uh, And so there's three ways they would have searched for who and when. They could have asked the Lord while they were receiving prophecies. They could have studied their own prophecies and those of others. And three, they could have prayed to the Lord for answers. Okay, because he says, I gave my attention to the Lord to seek him. Now, let's step back from this and see how this kind of relates to us. Let's compare the Old Testament prophets to us as New Testament people. The first thing you see is they had an advantage over us. And I already said that they could ask the Lord directly. Okay, that so they did have that advantage over us. They could ask the Lord directly. But they were similar to us, and this is very important. Before you get like, oh, I wish I was a prophet, then I could ask him anything I wanted, and he would answer and tell me, answer all my questions. We are sim- they are similar to us because not all their questions were answered. And just like us, they wondered about who some of the people in prophecies were, and the timing. All right? So here's the thing. Even though they studied, even though they prayed, and even though they asked, the Lord did not reveal to them who the Messiah would be, and He did not reveal to them when, specifically, He would come. Third, these Old Testament prophets are a reminder to us. And I think this is significant. They are a reminder to us that diligent study about prophetic fulfillment is not condemned, but commended. See, we live in a day when diligent study of prophecy, uh, it used to be popular, maybe too popular in the 70s and the 80s. Now it's not popular. You know, don't worry about times and dates and, and how it will be fulfilled Just focus on Jesus because he has come. And there's some good in that. Because here's the thing. What were these guys wanting? What were they really wanting to know? They were focused on the person of Christ and the coming of his work. So that's a reminder. So uh, two things I just want to say. There's balance here. First of all, the diligent study of prophecy is commended and not condemned. In this passage. But the diligent study isn't about who the Antichrist is, it's about who Christ is. Okay, focus, look at what I recently read, look at what the prophets were looking at. They were looking at the person and the work of Christ. But fourth, we have, that should be in the present tense, we have an advantage over them. And what is our advantage? We know, yeah, we have, well, we have the scriptures, but they had scriptures. But what do we have? We know who Christ is. Who is it? 
Jesus. And we know when he came. And when did he come? Over 2,000 years ago. So we have that advantage. And so here's the reality. Third point is this. The Old Testament prophets serve all who, fill, who hear the fulfillment of the gospel proclaimed in Jesus. The prophets were serving us who hear the gospel and know, hear, hear the fulfillment of the gospel proclaimed. And that's really what verse 12 is about. Look at verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which have now been announced, proclaimed to you through those who preach the gospel to you. How? How do they preach? By the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that predicted the Scriptures and the promise of the gospel is the same Spirit that is proclaiming the fulfillment of the gospel in Christ now and in in the future. That's a beautiful thing. Sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So here's what I want you to see. Let's end with this. One, God revealed to the Old Testament prophets that they were serving future believers. So we got Jeff and Susan frantically, diligently, carefully searching for phones and keys. And did you find your keys? Yes. And did you find your phone to which you were Praising Jesus. Well, here's the thing. They diligently searched, and they didn't have those answers. They never knew who it was going to be and when it would happen. And the reason was God revealed to them, this isn't going to happen in your time. It's going to happen in a future time. These prophecies give you hope, but they will be fulfilled in a future generation. You are serving future believers. And now how did the Lord... It says specifically the Lord revealed this to them. Now, Peter doesn't say how. Maybe it was directly. Do you realize Daniel 13 ends... Is it 13 or 12? How many chapters are in Daniel? Uh, 12. Daniel 12 ends with... uh, the Lord telling Daniel, shut up these prophecies for they are for a future time. And you, Daniel, just rest because they will be fulfilled. Go and rest. Basically, you can die in peace knowing that they will be fulfilled. But shut them up because they're not for you and your generation. So there we have you know, direct. But I think he's also indirectly told them, because he simply didn't answer and fulfill them in his generation. So the, you know, obviously, hey, these aren't for me. They're for someone else. Now, Acts 8 is, again, a great example of that. How did the prophet Isaiah serve the Ethiopian eunuch? He predicted the comings of Christ. And then Philip, the, the evangelist, comes and proclaims who and when and how this was fulfilled in Christ, and the Ethiopian eunuch comes to Christ, gets baptized, identifies with Christ, and begins to follow the suffering Savior and sovereign King. So, two, here's the second point. We are privileged to hear the good news that they predicted We are privileged to hear that the good news they predicted is being fulfilled. It's being fulfilled. 
And that's a beautiful thing. So why do we have these cards? Because like Philip, the prophecies of the Old Testament, that they long to know, who is this? And when he's come, we get to proclaim, it's Jesus. It's Jesus, and he has come. And he's done for you what no other person could ever do for you. He has died to cover your sins. And he has risen to save you. You say, yeah, but the people I hang out with don't really uh, care about that. Well, that's because you have to start with God's position. They have to understand that God is holy. And then they have to understand that we are all sinful. And then Christ's provision begins to make sense. And then finally, this weird little phrase, even the elect angels are always longing to look into this salvation. Longing to look. And here's the idea of that. He just kind of tosses it out there. But here's the idea. Is angels, if angels sinned, there was no redemption. So you have, say, you have, Holy angels and you have unholy angels, demons. And when the demons and the devil fell, there was no redemption. There was no grace. There was no good news. And so the angels are like, the holy angels are looking at what God is doing for sinful man. And they're like, whoa, this is amazing. They are singing amazing grace. But the word used for observing, it's for observers looking from the outside in because they don't get to participate in this. Here's what, John, here's what Peter is trying to say. He's trying to say this. We are a privileged people because we live in the now, not yet. But just like Isaiah, not everything has yet been fulfilled. And so we can rest easy knowing that it will be fulfilled. But what are we to do in the now, not yet? We are to be evangelists. We are to be proclaiming the good news that what has been promised in the Old Testament is fulfilled and being fulfilled in the new. And you know what really gets people? Is when you're able to testify, it's happening in my life. It's happening in my life. Because you know what? Once I was lost. Once I didn't understand who God was. And then once I did, I realized how sinful I was. And once I realized that, I needed hope, but I didn't know where to look. Then someone told me about Jesus, about who he was and what he did. And then when I turned from my sins and my own wisdom and my own ways, and I trusted him, I became a new creation. And you've seen that in me at work. Not sinless, but different. You've seen that in me. You've seen that in the way I talk. You've seen it in the way I live. You've seen it in the way I work. And you've seen it that when I fail, I humble myself and I ask others to forgive me because all I am is a sinner saved by grace. And you can be the same thing. Folks, we are a privileged people. Isaiah was a puzzled prophet, but he was serving us. And we are privileged but not deserving because what we are embracing is a gospel of grace. Amen. I'm thankful. Susan has Susan. You have your phone, Jeff, you have your keys, but I hope each one of you have found 
what the prophets were looking for. And you have the gospel of grace. But don't hoard it. Share it. Invite. Pray. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the amazing truth. A lot packed in these three little verses. And it tells us a lot about the prophets. But Lord, most of all, it tells us about you. Jesus is the Christ. So Father, may we accept the gospel if we have not. And may we live the gospel if we're not. And may we share the gospel because we are a privileged people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I enjoyed that passage. I hadn't studied that.